Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Before I begin today's episode, I wanted to ask for your help with something. If you listen on iTunes, you've probably seen their list of podcasts designated as COVID-19 essential listening. I've reached out to Apple to ask them to include Shelter in Place on that list, but I need your help. If you could take a moment to go to iTunes, rate Shelter in Place, and write a quick review of what you like about the show, I would be so grateful. If you've been on a phone or a computer today, it's likely that you've seen the hashtag GivingTuesdayNow. My email inbox this morning was filled with messages from charities asking me to donate. I don't mind these requests, but they did feel a little harder to read today than they usually do. If you've been listening to Shelter in Place, you know that a couple of weeks ago, our family lost our source of income and postponed indefinitely some big plans for the future. Even as I'm peeling back layers of disappointment and loss every day, I'm also giving myself permission to dream some big, crazy dreams, like seeing if I can support my family of five with this podcast. Maybe that's why Giving Tuesday snuck up on me this year. In episode 37, I shared about how complicated generosity feels for me right now, when there's so much need in the world. I've been thinking a lot this week about what it means to be generous, even when I don't feel like I have much to give. Giving Tuesday happens every year on May 5th, but it wasn't always that way. If you go to givingtuesday.org, this is what you'll read. Giving Tuesday was created in 2012 as a simple idea, a day that encourages people to do good. Over the past seven years, it has grown into a global movement that inspires hundreds of millions of people to give, collaborate, and celebrate generosity. Whether it's making someone smile, helping a neighbor or stranger out, showing up for an issue or people we care about, or giving some of what we have to those who need our help, every act of generosity counts, and everyone has something to give. In an era of global crisis and disconnection, we need new rituals to connect us. As the world's largest giving movement, we believe we can go further, faster. In this time when my family and I are slashing expenses, canceling plans, and putting off purchases, I found this so hopeful. We do need new rituals, new ways of showing up for people. We need to figure out, even now, in a time of scarcity, what it means to make this world a more just and generous place. Someone who's thought a lot about this is Caroline Rue, an associate professor at Concordia University in Montreal and the research chair on the psychology of resource scarcity. In her article, Does Thinking About Scarcity Make People More Selfish or Generous?, Caroline writes, As a graduate student, I often felt that money was tight, time was insufficient, sleep was a rare commodity, and food was lacking in the house. Objectively, my stipend provided me with a decent living. I managed my time efficiently most days, I slept a decent amount of hours most nights, and I always had something to eat at home. Subjectively, however, I often thought about these resources in terms of scarcity or not having enough. Caroline and her co-author, Kelly Goldsmith, who's an associate professor at Vanderbilt and, fun fact, also a former contestant on the reality TV show Survivor, 
wanted to know if thinking about scarcity makes us more selfish and less generous. Previous research on the topic had mixed results. Kelly said, Once we began reading about it, we realized that scarcity has these conflicting effects. Scarcity can lead you to put your own needs first, which is a logical prediction. But other literature suggested that when the world is running out of resources, that's when we really band together. They conducted a series of experiments where participants had the opportunity to give money either to themselves or to an anonymous other person. If that opportunity to give or receive came right on the heels of describing a situation of scarcity, participants were more likely to keep the money for themselves, which was pretty much how they thought things would go. But in another experiment, participants became more generous after talking about scarcity, but only if they were reminded that being generous would somehow serve their own interests down the road. I found this relationship between selfishness and generosity to be a little troubling, though not surprising. But Caroline and Kelly don't see it that way. Caroline writes, Although one's own welfare may be advanced through selfish behaviors, for example, keeping one's money as opposed to donating to charity, it can also be achieved by behaving more generously toward others, when such behaviors also provide personal gains, for example, giving to charity in order to gain status. Therefore, next time you want to ask a time-constrained professor for help, you may want to emphasize what that person may gain by helping you, instead of trying to appeal to their altruistic self. Kelly adds, By understanding these psychological mechanisms, we can take advantage of them. If I buy a green product because it's going to save me money or because it's better quality, I'm still buying a green product that will use less energy. So there's still a benefit to the world. When I reached out to Caroline to ask her if I could quote the research and writing she and Kelly had done together, I also asked her about what life has been like for her recently during this time of sheltering in place. Caroline said, What I have found particularly interesting about my own experience is that even if I have spent close to 10 years studying how scarcity impacts decision-making, I still fall prey to all the biases like everyone else. I already knew that scarcity could produce strong effects, but I was surprised by how much I was impacted by it myself. This observation has now increased my interest in identifying ways to help counteract the effects of scarcity. I have a hunch that mindfulness and expressing gratitude might help. In a recent story in Business Insider, Kelly said, We can't pretend that this disease is indiscriminate. Those who have less are more exposed and vulnerable. And with the product hoarding we've seen, it does create a situation where the poor get sick and the rich get well. Kelly's comments tap into something I've been thinking about since the very first week of sheltering in place, when I was on a Zoom call with my husband's family, as well as a friend of the family who works for World Vision. She said that the people who are most vulnerable in this world are going to be the ones who are hit the hardest by this virus. Her words have come back to me each time I got a message from one of my friends in the Philippines telling me that they don't have enough to eat. I've been thinking about my own selfish tendencies to look out for my own family, to make sure that we have enough. It's unsettling to know that based on Caroline and Kelly's research, even my altruism isn't always pure. But I want to push myself beyond that selfishness. If I can choose to be more generous right now, 
because doing so will make our world more just and equitable, then scarcity doesn't have to make it all about me. Maybe this time of scarcity in my own life is actually an opportunity to become a stakeholder in generosity in a new way. I shared last week in episode 36 that I was learning about Patreon and other platforms that allow people to financially support podcasts and other art forms they want to see continue in the world. I've been working on setting up those support structures for shelter in place. From the beginning, I've hoped that each of these episodes would feel like a gift to you, a small bit of sanity and intention that you can bring to each day. But as I've read Caroline and Kelly's research, I've also been thinking about how it could be bigger than that. What I came up with is this. Whether it's through support from ad revenue, sponsorship, or Patreon support, I'll donate 10% of whatever I receive to charities that are focused on caring for our world's most vulnerable populations right now. I'll include in my show notes where that money is going each month. Maybe Caroline and Kelly are right, that my reasons for giving are also self-serving. Maybe we can't totally get away from that. But whether my efforts to monetize and support my family succeed or fail, I want to be able to look back on this time as one where I turned my own selfish desires into generosity, even when it was hard. I don't want to just talk about generosity. I want to become more generous. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, I would love it if you could rate it and review it wherever you listen, share it with a friend, and subscribe. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. Even in these tough times, this family business has stepped up to be the first sponsor of Shelter in Place. When you order wine from brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code SHELTER. If you order six or more bottles from Brick and Mortar, you'll also get free shipping and overnight shipping in California. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. As always, you can find links to the things I mentioned in each episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.